Thank you guys for coming out today. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is David, and I'm part of the staff here at Severn. And uh, today we are continuing our series called Knowing and Encountering God. And what we've been doing so far in the series is each week spending time uh, looking at an attribute of God, you know, who God is. We're spending a lot of time on that because uh, what we might think we know about God and how we actually view him or relate to him are often two very different things. Um, and that's so important to, to consider because the way we view God, the way we actually relate to God, uh, will really impact every single area of our life. And, uh, and so far what we've looked at uh, in our series, we've looked at the fact that God is knowable, he can be known. We've looked at the fact that God is sovereign. And we've looked at the fact that God is holy. And uh, some aspects of God, um, things like sovereignty and holiness, are concepts that aren't super familiar to us. So the challenge there is to familiarize ourselves with a certain idea and then see how that pertains to who God is and and how it impacts us. Because you're not probably talking about holiness and sovereignty around the water cooler at work all the time. Um, But other aspects of God, uh, sometimes the danger is that we're too familiar with them to the point that we come in with so many preconceived ideas or misunderstandings that um, we can actually really have a distorted view of God. And, and what we're talking about today is one of those that we're maybe very familiar with. Uh, we're, we're talking about the idea uh, that God is a God of love. And I'm going to guess that nobody here who's listening, either in person or online, nobody's here who's like, that's the first time they've heard that. You know, we've all heard this idea that God is a God of love. And you've all shown up today with some, some preconceived ideas about what that actually means and what, how it actually impacts your life. And some of those are, I'm sure, correct and some are incorrect. Um, but on top of that, as far as the view of our misunderstandings of maybe God's love, um, our understanding of love itself, just the word love, uh, the definitions that are out there and the way it's used are so various that if you were to go out on the street and ask 10 people, what is love? Um, half the people might start singing to you, but the rest would give answers that are all different from one another. We'd have all these different definitions. Um, and the reason I wanted to, to start with that, just that idea that we, we come in with these different understandings, these preconceived ideas, is so that we can approach God's word today, all of us together, with a posture of recognizing that we don't perfectly understand what it means that God loves us. We don't fully understand that. And and that's not a knock against you or me. Um, Paul himself, the Apostle Paul, uh, prayed for Christians that they would come to know more fully the the length and the width and the breadth and the height of God's love. So so that's our goal today, is that whether you're a Christian or not, if you're listening today, my hope is that by the end of our time today, we'll all have grown in our understanding of of what God's love is and what it means that God is loving. Uh, So we're going to talk about uh, why we need to know God's love, how we can know it, and then how we can actually personally experience it in a way that actually changes us. And um, <clears throat> to do this, we'll be in a very familiar passage. I'm going to be in John 3. Uh, I'm going to read verses 14 through 18, and we'll get started here. <clears throat> so starting in verse 14. Just as Moses listed, lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world that he might condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe believe is already condemned, because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. So the the first thing we're going to talk about today, our first main idea, is why we must know the love of God, why we must know God's love. And... This passage we looked at today contains uh, the most famous verse 
ever. You know, really, without, without a doubt, John 3.16 is the most famous verse, you know, for God so loved the world. Um, even if you're not a Christian, you're familiar with John 3.16. But for all its fame, we have a really hard time believing and actually living like that verse is actually true. And I would go so far as to say that our inability to believe that or actually recognize that truth, that God loves us, um, has probably led to more problems than anything else ever. That's a pretty bold statement, but here's what I mean. Um, why, why do we need John 3.16? Why does that verse exist? You know, why do we need a verse that says, God sent Jesus into the world to save the world? And for the answer to that question, we have to go all the way back uh, to the beginning, to the Garden of Eden, where God created everything, and it was all good. It was perfect. You know, no, no sin, no death, no sickness. Um, but as the story goes, man rebelled against God, sin entered the world, and everything was, was really ruined. Everything was broken. And that's, you know, why no one has to convince you that something's wrong with the world. No one has to convince you there's something wrong with you because we've, we've only ever known this, this sin-filled world. But <clears throat> everyone knows the kind of the original sin is Adam and Eve ate the fruit God said don't eat. But have you ever thought about what was the belief behind that sin, that what led to them actually making that decision to, to disobey God. And when you look at the story at the beginning of Genesis, you'll see that it's actually they didn't believe that God really loved them. They didn't think God actually had their good in mind, and they actually believed the lie that he was holding out on them and actually trying to pull a fast one, you know, and, and leading them away from joy instead of into joy. And what that led to was them being dissatisfied and what God had for them, going their own way, and nothing but problems followed that. So this inability of them to believe that God actually loved them made them view his commands, again, as things that lead them away from joy instead of into joy. And we do the exact same thing, and it leads to all kinds of problems in our lives. But if you think about the commands of God, um, if he actually loves us, then his word and his commands are actually only for our good. Every single command he's ever given are just for our good. It's for human flourishing, for our life, for our joy. And he's actually revealing to us the reality of our design, you know, how we're made as people and what we're made for. But if, he, you know, if God doesn't love us, his commands could simply be just to you know, keep us in line or make us miserable or you know, just to make sure he can be the dictator of the universe. You know, that, but if he does love us, then they're actually for our good. And, and all of God's commands, Jesus said, are summed up into two. He said it's love God and love people. So what this shows us about our design is that you and I, we were designed for love. We were designed by a God of love. We were designed to love. And I think, you know, there's, there's evidence for this, even if you were to just look around the world and see the obsession people have with love. Even though it might be a distorted view of what love is or misunderstanding of what real love looks like, we're obsessed with love. And I think that's just evidence pointing to this, this reality of our design. But if we're ever going to be um, people who actually live in this design, you know, we're actually people who live lives fulfilling what we're actually made for and really flourishing and actually experiencing this joy and this life that's found in that, then we have to know the love of God. Because in 1 John, we see that we love because God first loved us. So if you don't know about that foundational love of God, you're like a building whose foundation is off. And when a building's foundation is bad, cracks show up. So in our lives, cracks will show up in our lives, just like a, a building with a bad foundation. And when a foundation is bad, the only solutions are, hey, fix the foundation, or the building's going to collapse. 
So these cracks that can show up in our lives when we don't actually believe God's love, they can look a lot of different ways. It can look really kind of an infinite number of ways where you see these cracks show up. But I wanted to give a few examples. This isn't an exhaustive list, but when we don't believe that God loves us, what, is, what do these cracks look like? How does it actually show up in our lives? Um, one, one that comes to mind kind of on the forefront is we'll be very prone to worry about the future. Even if you're a person who thinks God is in complete control of everything, you believe he's sovereign, that actually doesn't help you that much if you don't think the person who's in control actually cares about you. So be very prone to worry about the future if you don't think God actually has your good in mind or actually cares about your good at all. Another way this can manifest in our lives is that we'll be continually dissatisfied. You'll just live a life where you're always chasing the next thing because what happens is we end up running through life looking for the good life, you know, in quotes, everywhere except for where God says it is. Because, again, we don't trust that his commands are actually for our joy. We think he's holding us back. We think he's hiding things from us or trying to make us live boring, miserable lives. But in reality, he's not. And another kind of last way, just a third way, again, this isn't an exhaustive list, but a third way that this can kind of manifest in our lives and we don't actually believe that God loves us is we'll be constantly insecure. <clears throat> because we'll always be uh, trying to prove how lovable we are through self-expression and effort and striving, and that can be religious striving or it can be irreligious striving, just trying to achieve goals you've set for yourself, but we'll exhaust ourselves trying to prove how lovable we are when the God of the universe is literally screaming from the rooftops, you are already loved. And it's not because you did something, and it's not because you're lovely. It's because he is loving. That's who he is. It's what he does. So just kind of to kind of wrap up this first idea of why we need to know it so bad is we, we need to know God's love because it's not just something we can do with or without. It's indispensable. Without understanding God's love, we'll never experience full, the fullness of joy. We'll never be satisfied and, and we'll never actually experience life. You see in John 3.16, you know, you, you, the eternal life is found only in Jesus in, this, in knowing this love of God. So we'll never find life. We'll never actually be able to live our lives as we've been made to live if we don't know the love of God. But the challenge is we can't just force ourselves to believe it more. You know, again, we've all heard that God loves us. Like, we all know that, but we still experience these cracks in our life. So, so how do we actually grow in our love for God? And that's what I want to talk about next, is how can we know God's love? And, uh, and I want to actually look at our famous friend, John 3.16. Um, I'm going to look at our famous friend to look at kind of how we can know God's love in the sense of getting a definition of it, like what is his love like? but then also recognizing the reality of it, that it's actually real. <clears throat> so I'm just going to read John 3.16 for us. It says, For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. So um, not surprisingly, we see here that the key to understanding God's love is Jesus. You know, Sunday school answer for you there. Not a surprise. So for God, God loved the world in this way, he sent his Son. So what I want to do is just spend some time just talking this morning, thinking through what do we actually see about God's love by looking at Jesus, you know, the fact that he came down to give his life to save us. What do we actually learn about God's love? And uh, the first thing is that uh, God's love is completely and utterly selfless, that he would give his life for us. And uh, this might sound harsh, but bear with me. I think this idea will actually help you and help me um, understand God's love more and appreciate it more, but um, God does not need you. And God does not need me. And again, that can sound mean, but if you've ever been networked, you've ever had a relationship with someone that you thought was genuine and you thought they really loved you and cared about you, 
but and that once you stopped benefiting them in a certain way, they just you know, dropped you like a bad habit. If you've ever experienced that, you know how painful that can be. But because God doesn't need you and doesn't need anything, doesn't even need our love, because for eternity before we were made, God had perfect love in the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That existed way before we existed. So God doesn't need our love. He's not some needy God. He doesn't need anything from us. So what that means is God cannot network you. It means that his love for you is perfect and pure, selfless love, like no other love you've ever experienced. So that's the first thing we see by looking at Jesus and seeing what does this actually show us. Uh, The second thing we can see, so first we see it's selfless. Secondly, we can see that it's infinitely great in the sense of its magnitude. It's infinitely great. Um, Jesus said uh, in John 15 that no one has greater love than this, than that he would lay down his life for his friends. So Jesus is showing us that he could not really, he couldn't possibly love you more. It's the greatest amount of love possible. And uh, one, one accusation maybe thrown, maybe you've heard this before, maybe you've felt this before in yourself. One accusation thrown at the idea that God is loving <clears throat> is the question, well, how could a loving God ever judge anyone? And this question has some assumptions and some, some real problems behind it, but one of the assumptions is that if God was really loving, he wouldn't be concerned about justice. Which, if you think about that for about two seconds, if you have ever been victimized or know someone who's been oppressed or has faced serious injustice, it's not very loving to you if God just winks at the evil you've experienced. So there's, a, there's already a problem there. But I think there's a question that should kind of come in response to that. If, if that's what love looks like, you know, this, this apathetic turning away, you know, just kind of, oh, it doesn't matter, you know, evil's fine. If that's what love looks like, the question is, how much does it cost that God to love you? Nothing. It's a cheap love. It's just apathy. It's not even really love. But because God cares about justice and he's loving, and he was willing to send his son to pay the price of justice on your behalf, it shows that God's love was infinitely costly to himself. So the amount of it is infinitely great. There's not a larger amount of love he could have for you. So we see these, just these two ideas here already. We see God's love is a completely, utterly selfless, and that it's infinitely great. So we're starting to kind of build a definition. Um, and I want to point out, it's, it's also not just a New Testament thing, because that's another accusation sometimes. Maybe you felt that, like, why is the God of the Old Testament so mean and the New Testament so loving? Uh, it's the same God. And in fact, uh, John 3.16 is actually a fulfillment of God's promises of his faithful love towards his creation. And actually, <clears throat> my favorite word uh, in the Bible for love is actually an Old Testament word. It's a Hebrew word. Um, I'm going to pronounce it wrong on purpose. Because if I said it right, I might spit on these people in the front row. So it's one of those clear your throat kind of Hebrew words. Um, but it's spelled H-E-S-E-D. So I'm just going to say hesed. Because I'm American, I'm not going to do the sound. So hesed. Um, but this word, it's all through the Old Testament, and we don't really have an English word for it. Um, if you look through different, if you do like a word study and look at this, you'll see all different kinds of English translations. It, sometimes it shows up as uh, loving kindness or faithful love, steadfast love. Sometimes it shows up as mercy, and that, that shows you, and it actually, the reason for that is we don't have an English word to really capture the ideas that this word captures. So what it, what it actually puts together, this one word, uh, it puts together the ideas of love, of generosity, and of enduring commitment, kind of all into one. So it's this idea of, of promise-keeping loyalty that is motivated by deep personal care. So when you're trying to think through what does that actually mean, what kind of love is this that, that God's describing himself by here in the Old Testament, um, think of a, a, sp- a spouse, like think of a, a wife who uh, cares for her husband for the last years of his life, even though he's battling Alzheimer's. 
That's this kind of love. Think of Ruth, if you know the story of Ruth from the Bible, who sticks with her mother-in-law, Naomi, even though her husband had passed away and she really, staying with Naomi could mean certain death for her because they wouldn't have anyone to provide for them. She loyally stayed with Naomi, her mother-in-law, and that's described as an act of hesed. It's this kind of love. You know, think of the God of the universe sending his son to die for a world that hates him. That's this kind of love. And actually, <clears throat> in Exodus 34.6, God uses, uses this exact word to de- describe himself. It says, he says, Yahweh is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and rich in faithful love and truth. So that word faithful love, that's this same word there. So what, we're, what we see here, I wanted to include that because it's this holistic picture of what it really means when we say God is loving, or when, it says, when we say God loves you, it's so different than how we can often, what pops into our head when we think of love. Because sometimes we can just think of it as feelings of affection, you know, feelings that can kind of come and go. We think of it as something you can fall in and out of, or we can think of it on the other side of the coin, we can think of love just as some like stoic service. But what we see whenever we look at the way that, you know, what we can see in Jesus as far as the way that God loves us is that God's great love is a committed, utterly selfless pursuit of your good. And I'll say that again. So God's love for you, God's great love for you is a committed, utterly selfless pursuit of your well-being, of your good. And I don't care who you are, but we all want to be loved like that. And maybe you think, yeah, I want to be loved like that, but, <clears throat> but how do I know that's true? You know, how do I, it sounds like a fairy tale. It sounds too good to be true, maybe. You know, how do I actually know it's real? And I wanted to spend just a second on that as far as how Jesus also shows us the reality of God's love, as far as how we can know that it's real. So we see, in, again, John 3.16, we're so familiar with it, but it says, God loved the world in this way, he sent his son. And in Romans 5.8, we see that God proved his love or demonstrated his love and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And this is so helpful for me, and maybe it will be for you too, uh, that God's love is not some nebulous idea that we just have to really hope is true. You know, God's love is not something that he revealed to a guy in a secret room that wrote it down and you can only read it with special glasses. Like, that's not how we know God's love. God built a tangible, concrete, real-life case for his love for us by making the primary evidence of it a historical event. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ is a historical event that happened in public in the Roman Empire and is extremely well documented. So what this means, why this is so helpful for me, and I hope it is for you too, is that when your life is falling apart around you and all of your circumstances are just terrible, you know, objectively terrible, and you're looking around and you can't see any evidence of God's love, what we have is a historical event that cannot unhappen, that we can look back to and say, no, I don't understand all this, but God loves me, and I know that's true. And that's helpful. I don't know, I mean, that's a very practical help, is you can look back, that, that event already happened. It cannot unhappen. So no matter what's happening, we can know, without a doubt, God loves us. <clears throat> and I need to take a drink, or I won't be able to talk for the rest of the day. <clears throat> so we've looked at, you know, this, this fact that Jesus is how we can understand what God's love is. It's how we can understand that it is, that it's real. I mean, I want to spend a little bit of time on this, our third idea, <clears throat> which is how we can experience God's love. <clears throat> because you might be saying, okay, we can know it, you know, that's great, but how do I actually personally experience this in a way that it actually changes me? Because you might have noticed <clears throat> in the passage that we read that, again, is very familiar to us, but you might have noticed this tension. You might not have seen it, but there's a tension here. Because we see that God has a love for all his creation. You know, God loves the world. 
and we read in other parts of the Bible, like Second Peter, that God's desire is that none would perish, that all would come to repentance. So you see God has this general love for all he's created. But you also see that in that passage we read, that some are condemned and some are not condemned. So what's the difference? You know, what, that's a tension. Whether you see it or not, there's a tension there. How do we actually experience the special saving love of God to where we're actually brought into good standing with him? What's the difference there? And um, to talk about that, I actually want to read uh, verses 14 and 15 again. They're the verses that, when I read them, you might have been like, why, do you didn't, why didn't he just start with 16? We all know 16. Um, <clears throat> but verses 14 and 15 said this. <clears throat> it says, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. So in John 3, Jesus is talking to a man named Nicodemus who was a Pharisee. So he would have been very familiar with the story Jesus is referencing from Israel's history. You know, Nicodemus would have been familiar with the old books from, the, from you know, Israel's history, uh, but you and I might not be as familiar with it. So Jesus is actually referencing an episode from Israel's history that's recorded in the book of Numbers, verse, uh, chapter 21. And what happened is um, God had just, he had brought Israel out of slavery in Egypt. So they were in Egypt, they were enslaved, terrible living conditions, he brought them out of that, delivered them from that in pretty miraculous ways. And now they're in the wilderness in Numbers 21, and they're, he's leading them to the promised land. But as, as humans are, uh, the people start to get angry with how God is leading them. And, uh, and they accuse God of this. This is what they say to him. <clears throat> they say, why have you led us up from Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread or water, and we detest this wretched food. So what they do is they accuse God of, of bringing them out of slavery just to have them die in the wilderness. So you see this same belief that God doesn't love them, doesn't want what's good for them, and has in fact tricked them. They, you've brought us out of here just to kill us. So they're not happy with God. They're dissatisfied in God's deliverance, and they're also dissatisfied in his provision because it wasn't that they had no food. They say, we detest this, we detest this wretched food, the way God was providing for them. They just weren't happy with it. And the way that God responds to this <clears throat> will probably make you question why in the world Jesus referenced this story right before the most famous verse in the Bible? So what God does in response to that is he sends snakes that attack the people of Israel, and some people start getting sick and dying from those snakes. And you might be thinking, what in the world? <laughs> Why would Jesus reference that? Why is David talking about that and a message about God's love? And isn't that a bit of an overreaction? And for all the, the questions we might have, for all the ways we don't like that, understandably so, the people of Israel, the people who actually, actually felt that affliction, they did not see it as an overreaction. What they actually did was their eyes were open to their sin, and they repented, and they came back to Moses, and they said, hey, we have sinned. Can you intercede for us and get these snakes out of here? It's a reasonable question. <laughs> Please, get these snakes. Take them away. And this is what we read. <clears throat> it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a snake image and mount it on a pole. When anyone who is bitten looks at it, he will recover. So Moses made a bronze snake, mounted it on a pole, and whenever someone was bitten and he looked at this for the bronze snake, he recovered. So in this story that Jesus references, we see a couple of things. First, we see that God's love doesn't always look how we think it should. We see that pretty clearly from that story. But secondly, we see that God is willing to go to great lengths. We see the lengths he's willing to go to to reconcile his people back to himself. We see that he's even willing to allow serious pain for the sake of preventing a more serious eternal separation from him. But 
Whenever Jesus associates himself with the snake on the pole, this story gains, gains a much greater significance because we see that God was not just willing, he's not just willing to allow great pain to prevent eternal separation from himself, he's willing to endure great pain to prevent that separation. Because just like the snake was lifted up on a pole, Jesus would be lifted up on a cross. And whenever you think about the fact that Jesus associates himself with the snake, it has to call to mind, if, I mean, if it doesn't for you, if you don't know these verses, it calls to mind the verses in 2 Corinthians where, where it says that Jesus became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. He didn't just bear our sin, he became it. Because that snake represented the sin of Israel. And if you go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, original sin, you got a snake right there too, and Jesus says, that's me. He said, I'm going to be lifted up like that. And what you see is Jesus being willing to become our sin and experience separation from God so that we don't have to. So we see this love that just really blows all of our understanding of love out of the water. And, and the question, again, that I asked at the beginning of this point was, how do we actually experience it? And the, the answer might sound too simple to you, but all we need to do is look. Just like the people of Israel simply had to look and be healed, the same is true for us. All we need to do is look at Jesus, knowing that only in him is healing found. Only in him is life found. There wasn't some 10-step program the Israelites had to do. There wasn't some elaborate prayer they had to figure out or six things they needed to do first. They just had to look. It almost sounds too simple, but I think that sometimes, sometimes it bothers us about the gospel. Sometimes it baffles us, but it, when you really think about it, it's a beautiful thing. All we have to do is look. And um, <clears throat> I actually want to, kind of as we're closing down today, read for you the uh, conversion story of a famous pastor named Charles Spurgeon. If you don't know who he was, he was a pastor back in the 1800s who um, grew up in a Christian home, <clears throat> but when he was a teenager, was miserable, absolutely miserable. He uh, just had no peace in his relationship with God, and um, one day, by a whole bunch of kind of like happenstance coincidences, he ends up in this Methodist church because there was this huge snowstorm. He wasn't even planning on going there. He just kind of ducked in because of the snowstorm. There's only about 10 or 15 people in the church, and the guy who normally preaches wasn't even there because of the snowstorm. He didn't make it out. So uh, shout out to replacement preachers in this little uh, thing I want to read to you. <clears throat> but, um, but this is what happened. I'm just going to read it to you. <clears throat> Into the pulpit climbed a thin-looking man, a shoemaker or tailor. Spurgeon was never to know anything about it. He announced his text as, as Isaiah 45:22, which says, Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is none else. Spurgeon says, he had not much to say, thank God, for that compelled him to keep on repeating his text, and there was nothing needed by me, at any rate, except his text. I remember how he said, my dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. <clears throat> it says, look. Now, looking don't take a great deal of pain. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger, it just says, look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A child can look. One who is almost an idiot can look. However weak or however poor a man may be, he can look. And if he looks, the promise is that he shall live. It says the preacher managed to spin that out for 10 minutes and then running out of anything fresh to say, he looked at his congregation and picked on Spurgeon. Don't you wish we did that here? Just, just point at somebody, start talking to him. He says, young man, you look very miserable. <laughs> and uh, well, said Spurgeon, I did look miserable, but I had not been accustomed to having remarks made from the pulpit about my personal appearance before. However, it was a good blow, and it struck right home. <laughs> uh, but the preacher went on. 
He says, and you always will be miserable. Miserable in life and miserable in death if you don't obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. And then he shouted at the top of his voice, as I think only a primitive Methodist can, young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but to look and live. And I did look. I saw at once the way of salvation. I know not what else he said. I did not take much notice of it. I was so possessed with that one thought. Like as when the brazen serpent was lifted up, the people only looked and were healed, so it was with me. I have been waiting to do 50 things, but when I heard that word, look, what a charming word it seemed to me. I'm going to call up the worship team and we'll kind of close down here. But um, I love that story. And I think that if you didn't notice, as we talked today about God's love, um, Jesus was the answer to basically everything. He's the, where we find the definition of God's love, we look at Jesus. To know that it's real, we look at Jesus. To experience it personally, we look at Jesus. And um, I just want to say that that's because all we need to do is look. And if you're someone who maybe your life experiences, maybe currently in your life, you've just experienced challenges that have made it really hard for you to believe that God loves you, the answer is to look at Jesus. And if you're somebody who is constantly worrying about the future because you just can't really bring yourself to believe that God actually has a good plan for you and that his way is better than our way, then the only, way, the only answer for you, again, is to look to Jesus. And if you're somebody who just feels like you've been enslaved to your sin and to the consequences of your decisions, look to Jesus. And if you've never thought God loved you, and you've never put your faith in Jesus, and still today you find yourself thinking, no, that's not true. That might sound kind of nice, but I don't, I don't really believe that God could love me. The answer for you is to look to Jesus. And if you're a Christian and you've sat through this sermon and you're thinking, you know, that's, that's basic stuff. I already got all that figured out. I would just encourage you to think about the fact that you don't. And to encourage you to keep looking at Jesus and to never stop looking at Jesus. Because in Jesus, we see God's love on display in the clearest possible way. So look to Jesus. That's my encouragement for all of us today. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that we can can talk about your love this way and not be making it up. I thank you that you have displayed your love like this for us. And I just pray today, I just ask one thing, that we would each of us have our eyes opened to the, the reality of your love for us to the degree that it would just continually be changing us and shaping us and that we would have an accurate view of how much you actually love us and how loving of a God you actually are. Even when it doesn't look how we think it should look, even when life just has no evidence for us that we can see in front of us, God, I pray that you would help us to know the truth, that you really do love us. And I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen.